Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 15. Proverbs chapter 15 has been a great chapter on help us understanding the concept laid out in the Bible about God, God's man, uh, mind and God's uh, man's heart. We now know that those two aspects that we talk about so much and many times not fully understanding how they operate or how they work, now found within the spirit of man, which gives him direction in life. And we also know that um, the spirit of man relates to our, our direction of life, which way we're going to go. Uh, based on our free will choosing. When we lend our spirit to the things of the world, then that is the mindset that we developed, and there becomes our attitude of heart. When we take our spirit and put it to the things of the Lord, then that becomes our mindset, and uh, there becomes our attitude of heart. You know, we, we align our spirit with the things of the flesh or the things of the Spirit of God. And after the last two weeks, you have what, oh, I'd say probably 99.9999% of God's people on this planet uh, will never have. And that is a complete understanding and layout of what exactly took place inside you. Your body, your soul, and your spirit at that instant of salvation. And how that they work as, uh, you know, as the key elements to your relationship with God. You and I, getting uh, by gaining knowledge, uh, you come in on Sunday morning, Thursday night, uh, you know, the people ministry that we have on Saturday morning or the one-on-one time that you have in the Word of God or, or, or with me or with whoever in our church, you know, that you get God's understanding, seeing everything through the eyes of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 4 says that all things are open and naked under the eyes of Him which we have to do. And using the principles, the doctrines of the Word of God to build a wall of protection. Now we talked about this last week. We talked about this uh, Thursday night when we were going through some things. First of all, for yourself, that you have a protection around you, a Bible doctrine like the wall that they had in the Old Testament around the city that keeps you from getting uh, caught up in the wrong things. Also, around your family. That your children, uh, your wife, your husband, uh, they're all protected by the principles of the Word of God that tell you what is good and what is not good. And then, of course, we talked about uh, our church. Uh, Most churches fail to have that wall of protection, so it's easy for heresy to creep in. You know, when we started teaching discipleship here many, many, many years ago, You'll remember, uh, many of you, that when you went through that initial class and I showed you how to teach the lessons, I told you that discipleship to, is not only giving the people what they need, giving them the basic fundamental foundations, but I also look at the discipler kind of like a customs agent at the entry port of entry into any country. Every country has things that you cannot bring in, certain food, certain plants, you know, certain animals, certain whatever. And uh, when you go into customs, they open up your luggage and they go through and they'll make sure that you're not bringing anything into their country that is not permitted. And of course, that's what really is one of the aspects of discipleship. A lot of people get a lot of weird ideas today. And when somebody comes in to be discipled, it's kind of your ability to help them uh, keep what is good to keep. And then to cast away what needs to be cast away. And Ecclesiastes talks about the time. There's a time to get. There's a time to cast away. 
There's some things that you want to keep in your life, and there's other things that you need to get rid of. And so we looked at that concept uh, of the wall and how to keep out and what to let in uh, through the gates uh, in the wall. And then we looked at the last part of verse 15 last week that talked about the feast that we all have, feasting on the Word of God, the banqueting on the things of the Lord. The Bible talks about the sincere milk of the Word. And when you get to that point in sincere milk of the Word, uh, that's the basic things of the Bible. And uh, you can have a great time with that and learn, and it helps you grow. Then you get to the place kind of like, maybe like we did on Thursday night. Uh, when we got into the question about the, all the wars and how important they are. And I took you and showed you the wars in the Old Testament and then, of course, the wars in the modern times, what we call the New Testament. And, uh, you know, yesterday in people ministry was another great aspect, how we went through Ezra and Nehemiah and saw the meat of the Word of God, feasting on those things, a continual feast. I showed you God's survival kit in the Word of God, how that in our journey through the wilderness of sin, that God has sustained us by what he's given us, just like he did the nation of Israel uh, in the early part of the book of Exodus. So with that today, we're going to look at verses 16, 17, 18, and 19 today. And again, we're going to add to what we've already learned, and then we're going to reinforce some things that we looked at, maybe add them, tweak them a little bit, and, and bring them into a line with what we talked about last week. So I want to begin reading here in Proverbs chapter 15, and we'll pick it up in verse 16. It says, Better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. It says, a wrathful man stirreth up strife, but he that is slow to anger appeases strife. Verse 19 says, the way of the slothful man is as a hedge of thorns, but the way of the righteous is made plain. Lauren, when in the back there, would you stand up and ask God blessing on our preaching this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the preaching of the word. We pray that you will just use it in our in our hearts and our minds and challenge us to live a life for you. And we just give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, buddy. Now, verse 16 says, Better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. Each one of these Proverbs carry with it a tremendous practical application. Of course, this is what the book of Proverbs is all about. And this verse is certainly one of the most practical principles that you're going to find in all of life. It's built on a fundamental Bible model or principle within the scriptures that is a great one to understand. It's probably one of the hardest to put into the practice today in the world that we live in. But simply understanding the concept is going to save you a lot of heartache and a lot of grief. Simply put. The verse is saying, the more you have, the more complicated life becomes. And with all of that comes more trouble. And that's a simple little concept, but it's so true. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 18 says, it says, for in, in much wisdom is much grief. And he that uh, increases knowledge increases sorrow. You know, that is so true. I, I, it's really true in the ministry. I mean, having to deal with people sometimes and having to deal with situations, I must be honest with you, there's some things that I would just rather not know. Uh, when you have to deal with a very bad, delicate, 
terrible situation. Honestly, I know the buck stops with me, and I know that that's my job, and that's my pay grade, and I get it all. But at the end of the day, I'd like to tell you that there are some times I just like to pass the buck and let somebody else deal with the issue. But you can't do that. Because it's such a true thing. And the more that you get involved in the Bible, the more wisdom you get, the more understanding you get, the more God is going to use you. And the more God uses you, the more people he puts into your life, the more issues you're going to have to deal with. It's so true. It's so true. It's true in a worldly sense, but it's also true in a biblical sense. Now, in the biblical sense, that's the good side of it, because the God can change things around. And you know as well as I do, for you got to fix something, you got to get the garbage out. I mean, if you got a if you got a stinking mess in your garage, the only thing that you can do to get the stinking mess out is clean it out. It isn't going to go away just because you keep spraying disinfectant on it. And a lot of God's people just want to look at their life and keep spraying disinfectant on it. But when you start to work with people, you take the knowledge and the instructions and the wisdom that you have. With that, you have to begin to deal with, with some issues. You know, I saw a t-shirt one time, and I, I, I think you can judge the, the statue of any country by two things. The t-shirts people wear and the bumper stickers on their cars. I think if you want to read into the soul of anything, just look at that. I saw a guy and a girl, uh, you know, walking down uh, someplace a while back, and they had, you know, she they, walking side by side, and she had a T-shirt on with an arrow pointing to her husband over here, and it says, "I'm with stupid." And I thought that was that was very instructive, you know. I saw another one that simply said, "Keep it simple, stupid." And I think that that's probably a pretty good, pretty good T-shirt to wear. Because man's concept of life on planet Earth is, is so much more complicated than God's. And sometimes because we live in a world like this, where complication is the rule of the day, it spills over into everything in our lives. Now, you know, man's concept on planet Earth is, is totally, just completely what God's is. Man will continually frustrate the things of life and make it so completely uh, confusing in every area. You know, you go from what Adam had in the garden where before he fell, which was everything was so simple. Everything was so perfect. He didn't have to work. He didn't have to worry about anything. He didn't have to, he didn't have to dig in the ground or, or everything was right there for him. And he goes from that simplicity by his own choosing. He goes from the simplicity of God to now where the Bible says in Genesis, uh, by the sweat of your face, you're going to till the ground until you return to it. Life got real complicated. Uh, you see it in everything. And man, when he does it, his complication thing, uh, making things complicated, he calls that progress. That's how he justifies it. And he makes, he thinks he's making the world a better place to live with all of the gadgets and everything that we have. He really does. And, uh, you know, the principle is found in all aspects of life. We're uh, coming into an election year in, in politics. And the Democrats want to keep the White House and the Republicans want to take the White House. And uh, all the issues are on the table. And it's going to be an interesting time to see exactly what happens. But the idea uh, that the Democrats have versus what the Republicans have is, is in a basic format is this. The Democrats say that more government is good. The Republicans say less government intrusion in your life. 
And it's a thing where uh, the Democrats want the government to run everything. You're like, Barry, uh, not Barry, uh, Bernie, Sanders. Bernie Sanders. Barry Sanders wasn't a politician, was he? No, he wasn't. No, he was a good football player, wasn't he? Yeah. Bernie Sanders is a socialist. He's a democratic socialist. That's like a hairline communist. And the socialist mindset, like they have in Sweden and other parts of the country, England, Canada, is a socialistic mindset that the government takes care of everything. They get in every aspect of your life. It's government health care. It's government, uh, you know, takes everything. It, it, they, they teach your children. They, they monitor this. The states basically lose all of their rights, and you lose much of your rights. And, of course, the government takes complete control of everything for your good. Hey, Stalin, Lenin, Trotsky, every communist that ever lived, when they lined all the people up and shot them because of the fact that they wanted to take what they have, in their minds, they thought they were doing their country a good service. You pay the price for it, but in their minds, it's a good thing. And all of this leads to government intrusion, losing you losing your rights, and then you, you move into a communistic state where you don't have any rights. Government controls everything. In Ecclesiastes chapter 6, socialism is laid out very clearly, and Solomon said it was vanity. Ronald Reagan, who was a great president, and many people look back to him, uh, you know, uh, as, a, as one of the greatest presidents that we probably had in the 20th century. He said one time that the 10 most terrible words that any American could ever hear is simply, Hi, I'm from the federal government, and I'm here to help. <laughs> and boy, that is so true. You come, we're in tax time. Unless you just don't make anything at all, you just cannot fill out your own taxes. I mean, the tax code forces you. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of pages. They change it all the time. So now it forces you to go to somebody who to do your taxes, to pay them to do it, because it's so complicated. Look at Obamacare, when the government said, we're going to mandate health care. And we've got this great organization that's going to put it all together that everybody can get affordable health care. Boy, how did that work? It crashed for the first nine months. Nobody could even sign up. Then when they thought getting the thing going, they found out that it was five times more expensive than what you could get for yourself. And many people, it was just a disaster. This is one of the reasons why Trump is so popular today. People see him as an alternative to big government. Somebody who will blow up the system. And that's what Americans are mad. They're really upset. The government has betrayed us. The Democrats and the Republicans have sold us out. And Americans across the board are looking for somebody who at least appears to be honest. You know, everybody says Trump's a bully. He is a bully. But you know what? We have been bullied so much by the bullies in Washington. A lot of people are thinking maybe it's time we get ourselves a bully and bully back a little bit. So you see it in every aspect. You see it in, in Christianity. You see it in the religions of the world. You know, how much simpler, honestly, how simple can the salvation of your soul be? How I many Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. How much simpler can it be? than the simple plan of salvation. But when man gets a hold of it, he takes salvation. 
He turns it into a $25 word soteriology. And people don't even understand what it's talking about. When man gets it, he takes that simple plan of salvation and makes it baptism. He invents a word called sacraments. He invents another word called confirmation. He invents another term called the full gospel. Like when you got saved, you didn't get all of the gospel, so you got to get something else to get the whole gospel. He turns and invents another term called the baptism of the Holy Ghost that gets you the the full gospel. And he just takes that simple little thing that is so basic and he confuses it beyond belief. Thursday night, we have Bible study. Open forum. Any question you want to ask about the Bible. It's called, when man gets a hold of it, that's called hermeneutics. And in many cases, when a pastor gets into the Greek and the Hebrew to try to prove to you you got to have it, it turns into hemorrhoid nudics. <laughs> Last couple of weeks, we've been talking about man and his two natures. The spirit, the old nature versus the new nature. How simple can that be? Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 is the easiest chapter place in the Bible to get it. But when man gets his hands on it, it becomes anthropology. Some big $25 word that nobody can understand. Many of you teach the Bible. You teach discipleship one and two. Many of you work with people ministry with me. But when man gets a hold of simply teaching the Bible, it now becomes an exegesis. Something that you, 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 you do that complicates the whole thing. And I want to tell you something. There is no easier book on the planet. There's no easier book on the planet to read or to learn than the Bible. And yet, you are led to believe that it's almost unattainable. But you know who told you that? Man told you that. God didn't tell you that. God said, come now, let us reason together. Why, in the Bible, I don't know if you even know this, 98% of the words in the Bible outside the names are one-syllable words. Years ago, Bob Jones University did a study and a breakdown of the King James Bible. And they found that 98% of the words outside the names are simply one-syllable words. And according to Flesh and Kincaid, Flesh and Kincaid is an organization that rates the reading level of books in, in public schools. At least they did. I don't know if they still do it anymore. But they evaluate books and say, all right, this is a grade level two, grade level three, grade level four, fourth grade level. That's what they did. They did the Bibles. And Flesh and Kincaid, the standard now for every public school for the reading level of books, said that your King James Bible is written on a fifth grade level. But you know what man, man cannot be satisfied with that because man wants to complicate it. So he comes out with the RSV and the ASV in the early part of the 1900s and that became a sixth grade level reading. He comes out in the 50s and the 60s with good news for modern man and that is a seventh grade reading level. And then the last piece of trash they come out with was the NIV that everybody thinks is the greatest translation in the world. It's an eighth grade level. You see what man does? That Bible written to you is written on a fifth grade level. But when man gets his hands on it, he's got to spiral it up and make it complicated. And that's what man does when he takes simple things in the Bible and won't accept them as the way they are. He just has to complicate it. The process for you to learn your Bible 
on a Bible is a Bible-based, Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, New Testament local church that understands the simple concept of the Bible. Taking, taking the things in the Bible and not complicating them, but keep them simple. Being able to take the most complicated doctrine, but when you look at them through the Bible, the Bible just breaks them down so simply. But no, no, no. Man has got to develop a Bible college. He has to develop a higher basket of authority by which you come now and you, you take the common understanding of the Bible and put it on a level, college level, that now you're IQ, now you're, you're brain cells, now your ability to have some kind of intelligence acts like it's really important to have that to learn the Bible. And by doing that, they have sent the message through churches, through colleges, that the Bible for the common man is out of reach. You're told that if you don't go to Bible college and really start study the Bible in a professional way, that that's the only way to learn the Bible. That is the worst way to learn the Bible. In Acts chapter 19, you find, remember Acts, the book that defines the New Testament? The first Bible college shows up in Acts chapter 19. And the first Bible college in the Bible sets the tone for every Bible college later. You know what it's doing in Acts chapter 19? It's teaching against the very simple teachings of Paul. Now I just go on record in saying this. There isn't any good ones. There isn't any good one. You say, well, I know a good one. Well, you don't know very much about it then. It isn't very good because God's program is a local church. You've got to ask yourself at some point in your life about everything. You've got to ask yourself at some point in your life, as a Christian, how much error do you want to allow in your life? The answer for me is zero. So you stay with the book. You stay with the things that God has done and given you. And the verse is so true in life. The greatest falsehood that goes contrary to verse fifteen, chapter 15, verse 16. The greatest lie today put out by the devil in the world is the more that you have the happier you'll be and nothing can be farther from the truth that old nature versus the new nature you're never going to be able to be satisfied in feeding the flesh because it's never going to be enough now the model in the bible is so simple to follow it's just keep your life as simple as possible and i understand that that's hard sometimes in the world that we live in it's an upstream battle, but you've got to keep the concepts always before you. I never forget that God's form of society, God's form of government, was a garden, a farm, a ranch. And you find that, that uh, you know, the, the, this form of government is a righteous theocracy. God's plan for man was not New York. And I know we like to go over there and it's a beautiful city and it's got so much history and it's rich. But that was not God's plan. God's plan was not even Kansas City. And yet we all chose one way or the other to live here. God's plan is not Seattle. God's plan was in Boston. You never want to forget the first city in the Bible was started by a murderer who was running from the presence of God. Genesis chapter 4 verse 16. And with that began all the complication of things that we see. When the millennial reign of Christ comes into play and Christ comes back, Bible makes it very clear in Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 35, it goes back to the simplistic ways of the Garden of Eden. So better is, better is little with the fear of the Lord 
than great treasure and trouble therewith. I, I, I know how hard saying this, preaching this, I know how hard that is to find a happy medium in the middle of it. Hey, the technology today is incredible. When I was a kid, I loved, I grew up watching Star Trek, the original Star Trek, when William Shatner wasn't fat. (laughs) I was going to say that Sulu wasn't gay, but he probably was back then too. (laughs) As a kid growing up, I loved Star Trek. I, I, I loved everything about it. I look at them now compared to the movies that have come out and, oh, it's, it's, they're terrible. But I remember as a kid, back in the 60s, in the, uh, you know, watching Star Trek, and James Kirk, and all of these guys, you know, and, and the Starship Enterprise, and all the characters who, amazingly, after the series was over, went on to make, I don't know how many movies, all the way up to when, you know, it was incredible. And then there was a bunch of spinoffs off of that. But I remember as a kid, Looking at the technology and wondering, man, would it be neat to that? Old Kirk would be down there on a planet someplace and the spaceship would be up there. He'd, he'd take out a little thing and open it up and say, Scotty, Scotty, Scotty. And I used to say, man, that would be the neatest thing on the planet. I got one now. Except Scotty won't answer. But I got the same thing they had. And I used it as a kid. Used to watch that. Hey, I remember when the first calculator came out. I remember when the first digital watch came out. And I remember watching Star Trek thinking, man, wouldn't technology be great if we all had communicators like that? Here it is. Now, for me as the child of God, I'm not going to need Scotty to beam me up. But it's incredible. I remember when, remember when the first cell phones, most of you weren't even born yet. Remember when the first cell phones came out? They were huge. They weighed 200 pounds. The battery was like the battery in your car. They have a shoulder bag, you carry it around. And that's why so many people in their 60s are walking like this. They, they, they were huge. Now you can get them on your watch. They're so small. And I'm thinking to myself, it's incredible the technology to be able to have a portable phone, but you can talk to somebody. But you know what? Man is never satisfied. Because that wasn't enough. So somebody had to go to work and say, okay, let's add texting as a feature. Now you don't have to talk, you can just send a message wherever you want. Computers. I remember when computers were so big it took a, 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 a computer to do a lot of work would fill a room this size. Now you can have one in your little backpack. Many of you have them on your phones. And you can just go wherever you want to go, look at whatever you want to go. You can text. Now you can. Now you got email. Man wasn't satisfied. When he got email, that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. You could talk to somebody. You wanted to look at them. So now you got Skype that you can actually see them. I went back Thursday night and there a little gal up there and and uh, Sarah up there in Lincoln wasn't here for the meeting. So they Skyped in and they showed me the phone and she was on. Hey, Bob. She was looking at me. I'm taking the thing, shaking it out, thinking she's stuck in there. It wasn't enough. So now you get to get an iPad. Now you get an iPhone. Then you got to put on iTunes. 
You got to get a Bluetooth, whatever that is. And you got an iPhone. Then it's not enough. You got to get an i4, then an i5, then an i5.5. You got to get a bigger screen. You got to get more pixels. And your whole world, everything you are, is a little handheld device that you carry around. You make your appointments with it. It's got an alarm clock on it. When you go eat and you want to know how much the tip should be, it's got a calculator, tip calculator in it. Oh, yeah, man. You can call on it, too. And when a new one comes out, a million people will line up and pay $600 for one. They'll stay up all night to get the latest gadget. Capitalism, unlike socialism, capitalism is a form of government where you make money off of feeding people's flesh, of giving them something new every year that they just got to have. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, capitalism, our form of government, is called a sore evil. That people keeping all that they have to their hurt. Now, do you know what you have and all your little gadgets out there? And I'm not fighting it. I, I'm glad you got one. I'm glad you do. I'm, I'm, I, this is not a message about it at all. Everybody should have one. I'm glad you have one. I think everybody should have a cell phone. I have a flip phone. That's what I stay with. And, you know, I, I'm just, but it's me. I'm just not that. I just can't figure those things up. And I don't want to. My life is complicated enough without having to shit. Hey, I've watched people get a new phone, so excited about the phone, they can't believe it, and then that sucker not work right, and it ruins their world. Over what? A little box that's supposed to do everything and suddenly decides not to. If there's any form of demon possession that floats through anything in our lives, it'll be on your computer and in your iPhone. They have a mind of their own. They'll do whatever they want to do. Uh, you know, I, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, what you have, what you have now has so much potential, has so many apps to it, has so many features, and the frustration level is unbelievable when it causes you trouble because it doesn't work right. Your whole world is in there. I, 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 look, at, I look at fixing cars. Incredible today. I mean, I look at a guy that can fix cars or even a guy with a computer that can just fix computers. I mean, I, I, you know, we got Chris Pagano over here. We got Woody over here and Danny. They just know computers. And I don't know how many times I called, I called, I called Woody and I simply say, Woody, why did my screen go from this to this? Why, when I do this, do I get this? And they're just terrible. If you don't understand it, these guys, some of you understand cars. You got Gary Potter who understands cars. Craig understands cars. Craig took a motorcycle frame, a little dirt bike frame, redid the whole thing, put a battery on it to run the tail, no gas, no nothing, a battery, and run it, and that sucker will go 40 miles an hour on a battery. Now, you give me those parts, and I'll make a UFO out of that sucker, but I'll never get a motorcycle out of it. That's man's technology. My dad told me about cars. 
I was telling Gary this last night. My dad told me, he said, son, my dad's dead now, and he doesn't see the what we have today, of course. But he told me back in the 60s, he said, you know what, son? Always buy a six-cylinder Chevy for a car. And I said, why is that, Dad? He says, because they're cheap on gas, and you can tune them up with a screwdriver and a set of spark plugs. Try that today. Man, they got whole diagnostic system. Diagnostic system is something they used to go to the hospital for. (laughs) You would go into the St. Mary's Diagnostic Center. Now you go to the diagnostic center in the car place. They would hook you up to check your vitals. They hook you up to check your car's vitals. It all runs on computer stuff. It's a, you know, it's ridiculous. But that's the technology today. You call somebody and, I mean, man, it goes through towers. Don't go through the phone line. I don't even know why they got the phone lines up there anymore. I guess for the birds to sit on, but they don't use the phones anymore. Now let me tell you something, and take this from an expert. And on this, I am an expert. Nothing has or ever will replace talking to a real person. You call somebody, calling the cable company. I don't need a new cable box, I need a new TV, because I just threw the cable box through the television set. You call them up. You get a, a nice, pleasant lady who's probably been dead for 50 years. She runs you through a series of prompts. She wants to know your code. She wants to know She wants to know your last four numbers of your social security. She wants to know the billing address. She wants to know this. And then she wants to know the problem. Not one prompt on her little mode is the problem that I have. I find myself yelling and screaming at a woman who doesn't even respond to me. She's a recording. I get caught up in that. And finally, I just yell as loud as I can. Representative. Representative. And then she's got the guts to ask me. Do you want to talk to a representative? No, no, no. I've just said it for the last 15 minutes because I didn't think of any other word to say. Whatever happened to making a call, somebody picking it up and says... Hi, can I help you? I'm telling you, take it from an expert, nothing has ever replaced talking to a real person or a paper and pencil to write it down with. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 says, The great principle for the 2021st century modern day man, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Being content with what you have without always wanting to have something new. And I'm not fighting it. I'm not fighting it. I don't drive a 63 Buick anymore. I got a modern day car that's got a modern day computer in it. I get it. But sometimes we get so caught up in all this, and it just takes, the more you have, the more time it takes for you to take care of what you have. Just be content with what you have that works the simplest way. Buy books. When your computer crashes, your books won't. Little is better in the fear of the Lord. Now, verse 17 says, Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. That's a great principle. That's a good family principle right there. See, you can have a great meal, 
But if there's no love at the table, no love in the family, you don't have anything but a meal. Most homes are just a home, but they're not a family because there's no love in the thing. He says a family is not a family based on what you have, the treasures that you have. Each stake seven days a week. All your possessions. The point he's trying to make is that a family, a strong family, and what makes a family strong is the love that holds them together, never focusing on the physical things that they have, thinking they're going to hold them together, but the love that they have for each other that will get them through. I mean, case in point, you buy your daughter a new car, She's thrilled to death. Oh, Daddy, I love you. Oh, honey, I love you too. Well, you're so good to me. I just love you. I just bought your car. She wrecks the car. Does something totally stupid with it. She wrecks the car. I guarantee you, it ruins the next meal. You're upset because she did something stupid. She's trying to defend herself. And it becomes... When, when you focus your family on physical things... You're always going to have problems. You focus a family not on what you have, not the the quality of the dinner, but the love that is surrounds that dinner. Listen, a mom and dad in their home with their family who love each other and love God and love the Word of God can get more flavor out of bean soup and black bread with the blessings of God than a Hollywood movie star in her fourth marriage eating steak and lobster at the Hotel Hilton. Without the blessings of God. And don't you ever doubt it. Why some of the happiest people I've ever met in my life. Carefree in this world. Have absolutely nothing. And those who have everything. Sometimes most of the time. Are the most miserable people on the planet. Now I get it. Everybody likes things. I'm not suggesting that you sell all your possessions. Wear a sackcloth. Become a mom. I'm not saying that. We live in a world that is very complicated. I get it. I have complicated things in my life. I hate it, but I get it. But I don't go out looking for trouble. I don't go out looking for the thing that is going to ruin my day because it doesn't work. How many times I've heard, I paid $600 for this and it doesn't work. Whose fault is that? In time, better listen to me, the great things of this old world that so many people desire and dream of, so many times they become the ball and chain by their own forging and shackle them to this old world for all their lives. They're addicted to the things of the world like a cocaine and heroin addict is addicted to his drugs. Look at verse 18. A wrathful man stirreth up strife. But he that is slow to anger appeases strife. Now again, we saw this principle a couple of weeks ago, maybe more than a couple of weeks ago, when we got into 15.1, where it said, A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Now we can understand it maybe a little bit better. Now here's a man, and he's causing an issue by stirring up strife. He's not only got strife in his own life, but he's not dealing with it correctly, and now he's allowing it to spill over into other areas that that keep it going. And we saw this in chapter 15, verse 1. The job of you and me as a child of God is to solve problems, not cause them. Diffuse them, not ignite them. Don't keep them stirred up. 
we as Christians have the ability to do that. The only question is, will we exercise that ability? And of course, the key to all this goes back to what we've been studying in the last couple of weeks is the spirit of man. Where your spirit is, where your mind is, where your attitude of heart is. Where and what you have had your spirit connected to. The word of God, then if you have, you'll solve it biblically. The things of the world or yourself, then you'll stir things up. When a man stirs up strife, he has a plan. There's a reason why he wants to keep it going. Something he's trying to accomplish. And there's some great examples of that in the Bible. I mean, some great stuff. When the scribes and Pharisees wanted to stir up strife against the Lord Jesus Christ, they had a plan behind it. They did it with false accusations and false charges. But they had a plan. They were used to the devil to stop him coming to the people, to being to Israel what God had promised Israel, the Messiah. So when they wanted to stir up strife behind him with all of the people and get them upset and finally get him to crucify him, get the Romans involved, get the people involved, get everybody involved against him, there was a plan behind them stirring up strife. When the Jews wanted to kill Paul. You see it all through the book of Acts and through his life. They're constantly stirring up people against him. And it was because they had a plan to stop him. He was going against the established religion of that day. And they they saw him as a sect. They saw him as a cult leader. Stirred up the people. Some of them even took a vow that they would not do this before unless they killed Paul. Terrible stuff. And every wicked child of God who stirs up trouble within a church, instead of dealing with it biblically, will have behind them what they do, a plan. And it usually works in most churches, because most churches don't have that wall. Now, here again, since we're at this time of, 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 the, of the year, and uh, you, boy, again, you see a great example of this within, within the Republican Party. And I'm going to tell you right now, maybe most of you don't pay attention to it, I... I I don't have an iPhone, so I have to watch things like this. But July is going to be a great show when they have the Republican convention up in Cleveland. It's going to be a great time. It's going to be fun. I mean, people, most of them, the popular vote of this country, they want Trump. They are sick of the good old boys club in Washington. They are sick of somebody getting up in politics in Washington who claim to stand for things and telling them whatever you want to hear. But when you get in office, you do whatever you want to do. And in their mind, Trumps will, will upset the whole system. Little do they know that we've talked about before, there ain't nothing going to mess up this system. I don't care who gets into office, this thing's going down. Now, the good old boys in Washington have been there for years. Some of them have been in the Senate, in the Congress. Some of them have been in politics for 20, 25, 30 years. And believe me, their power base is down and fixed, and they're certainly entrenched in what they do and connected. And it's a simple truth that you just, if you don't know this already, you need to go home with this today. All politicians are crooks. I don't care if you're a Democrat or a Republican or an Independent. I don't care if you get up there and you talk about God and religion and all these things. You, will, you have to get along with everybody as a politician and as a Bible-believing real child of God. You know you are not going to get along with everybody. If a real blood-washed child of God got up and run for politics, he'd be thrown out so fast or would be assassinated in the first week. He'd have to take a stand on too many things. And of course, they're not going to do that. 
Oh, Roy Thompson was a great preacher. He pastored the Cleveland Baptist Temple. He's dead now. He's one of my favorite preachers. I heard him preach all the way back in 1972. He preached one of the greatest messages on Zacchaeus that I, I, I ever heard in my life. I still have it and preach it. I preached it many, many times. He's preaching one time in the Canton Baptist Temple, and I was just a young guy. And he got up there and he was preaching on something, and he was making a point. And he said a guy up in Cleveland had put a headline in the newspaper, and he had said, Half the politicians in this city are crooks. And he said it incurred the wrath of all the politics, and they demanded a retraction. So the next week, he put in the same bold letters in the same paper, Okay, half the politicians in this town are not crooks. <laughs> well, I got news for you. They're all crooks. The system demands it. Cruz gets up and talks about what a great Christian he is. They do a little investigative work. Finally, he doesn't tithe. They'll get up and talk about this and talk about that. Never one time have I, said, have I ever heard him use the term or the word Jesus Christ. They always talk about God. Well, everybody talks about God. You want to really narrow the field? Just bring up Jesus Christ. You can go to any church, any place, anywhere, any group of people. Why, when you go to Congress and you have to prepare a prayer, if you're going to be the pastor that's going to open a prayer for the Senate every year or the Congress, you've got to submit your prayer before you can have to have it approved so it's nothing offensive in it. You know that in this country that was founded on the Word of God, that claimed to be a Christian nation, that all these politicians claim to love God, you know that you're instructed that when you pray, you cannot use the name Jesus Christ? Then what's the point? People are so foolish. So the idea of some outsider like Trump, you know, coming in and upsetting uh, their income and, and their, their whole world uh, is not going to happen. So they spend millions of dollars, they're called the super PAC, they spend millions of dollars to stir up trouble for not the Democrats, not for Hillary, not for Bernie, but for one of the people in their own party. Just because they are afraid that if he gets in, they'll lose their power. And you know what's the sad part of it is? Why it's going to be so interesting in July? This concept of a plan and stirring something up and keeping it going with a plan behind it. If they do that, if they continue on the course, here it is. Which is fine with me because I don't care one way or the other. But here it is. The Democrats will stay in power. Hillary will come in. They'll take everything in this country will nosedive farther than Obama could ever take it. And you and I will pay the consequences for it. But they won't care in Washington. You know why? On the Republican side? Because they get to still stay in power. They don't care about you and me. They care about keeping power. And anybody who threatens that, there'll be a plan to bring up strife. They look for everything. They are so afraid of him. Personally, I think if you just let him go, he's self-destruct himself. <laughs> but they're so afraid that somebody may get into office that may take from them what they have. In a lot of ways, boy, there's some great parallels here. In a lot of ways, it's just like the old Southern Baptist Convention around the turn of the century. The Southern Baptist Convention around 1890, 1880, and all of that 
up into the uh, uh, 1900s was the largest conglomeration of Baptists in in America. You had the GRB and you had uh, some of the uh, uh, Northern Baptist group. You didn't have any fundamentalists. You had no evangelicals. Nobody knew what that was. You had the Southern Baptist, Con- Southern Baptist Convention. She had so monstrosity herself into a machine. She had become the slickest organization and the machine. They dumped the Bible. They dumped God. They dumped everything. And they became the slickest, fastest, greasiest machine in religion in America. Their colleges were now teaching that the Bible was a fable. They were teaching that the story of Adam and Eve wasn't true, that the flood didn't really happen. They go into complete, yet they're churning out material, churning out every kind of organizational stuff. They had committees for everything. You couldn't go order toilet paper for your church without it passing through a committee. And boy, those old deacons, they had their power down. J. Frank Norris was one of their fair-haired boys that come up in the system. He saw the fallacy of it, and he hated it, and he took a stand against it. And I'll tell you what, he was one of the most, and still is, one of the most hated men in America, but he single-handedly broke the shackles of the Southern Baptist Convention. And you have a Bible here today because of what went happened way back then, because out of him came the fundamentalist movement, and he took a stand on one issue, and that was the King James Bible. But you see it in dead churches today. You'll have 10 or 12 deacons. Hey, I've been preaching down south over the years, years ago, and having revivals where I'd meet a pastor somewhere, and he'd see our ministry, and he'd be excited about it, and he'd see what we have going on. I had three revivals down in Alabama, Tennessee, and someplace else where I went down, four-night, five-night revivals. By the third night, they asked me to leave. The deacons did. And I was just preaching. But people were getting saved. I, I, we took two teams to, uh, went up to, uh, John Janinga's church up there. Uh, you may even been with me on that one. Oh, he was up in Iowa. Was that where it was? Iowa? John Janinga church. He was a nice guy. We took a discipleship team up there, spent Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday doing discipleship. Deacons kicked us out Monday night. I said to John, I said, what's going on? I said, I brought all those people up here. And I got the same answer, whether it was down in Alabama or Tennessee. You know what the deacons, why? And these churches were dead. They were going nowhere. And the pastor wanted to get it going. But you know what? He was the new guy. These old deacons were entrenched for 20, 30 years. You know what those deacons told me? They said, hey, what are we going to do with all these new people if they come in here? How are we going to control them? They liked it just the way that it was. They don't care if anybody gets saved as long as they have their power. They don't care if the church doesn't grow as long as they have their power. They don't care uh, whether anybody gets excited about the Word of God or God brings revival. All they care about, like the Republicans or the Democrats, I'm in power, this is my seat of power, and I'm not going to lose it. And when some young pastor comes in who sees the dead church, has all kinds of plans to get it going and move it going, you know what they'll do? They'll get together, they'll stir up strife about him, they'll give him all kinds of problems, and they'll get rid of him. All you drive down Nolan Road from 350 to 40 Highway at some point, 
right past coming from coming from uh, no, uh, 350 going toward um, 40 Highway. Right after the old racetrack, there's a little Baptist church called Little Blue Baptist Church. It's been there from the 1800s. I don't know their status now, but I know that they went 20 years without a pastor. You and I went to that church one time, remember, Kel? We wanted to check it out, just wanted to see what it was. Nice little church, right next to the original church that goes back to the middle 1800s. But I, I, I thought to myself, wow, you know what? Nice little church here, a little bit of property. I mean, um, I, I mean, it, it, it's been this way forever. I mean, I've lived here since the 70s, and it's never never put on an addition, never, never ran more than three or four or five cars. So we went one Sunday. Wow. <laughs> I, I thought I was going into a communist country. I didn't get past 10 feet past the door when I was given a, everything but strip searched. Where are you from? What are you doing? What's your name? Why are you here? I mean, if I was a visitor, I, you know, I just say, read me my rights and I'll put the cuffs on. I guess I, I, five or six old deacons ran everything. And the only people there was their wives who were still alive. And I think coming them had been dead for a week or two and they just stood them up there so it looked like there were people there. No pastor for 20 years. Six old deacons ran the whole place. And it was the same mindset. We get a lot of new people in here. And if you ever notice, they don't like you driving through their parking lot taking a shortcut. They're right on the corner. And you can go in on, on one road. I forget what that is. But you can go around the church and come out on... on uh, uh, Nolan Road there, and if there's a bunch of cars, you could just cut right through. Now, let me tell you something. If I had a church and you wanted to cut through my parking lot, you can do it anytime you want. Like it's going to really wear and tear on a dirt parking lot. No, no, they put up big chains on both sides. You can't do that. See, if they were smart and they really want to do it, you just put the chain down on one side and leave it on the other. And then when they got in and couldn't get out, you could have guys there witnessing to them and invite them to church. But they're not, they don't want you there. They not only do not want you to come to their church on Sunday, they don't want you driving through their parking lot that you might suggest I'm going to come to your church on Sunday. It's crazy. The last part of that verse, verse 19 says... Excuse me, verse 19 says, The way of the slothful man is a hedge of thorns, but the way of the righteous is made plain. Now that's a great verse. Now here again, notice the two ways. The way of a slothful man and the way of a righteous man. The way you go, again, is based on your attitude of heart, based on your mindset, based on your spirit. Now we got a new little term here, hedge of thorns. Now, thorns in the Bible will always refer to something negative in our lives in a spiritual way. Always connected with sin or judgment. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 18, when the curse fell on Adam and Eve, the Bible says in verse 18 that now thorns and thistles. But before that, there wasn't any. Represents sin. Paul had his 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, talks about a thorn that he had in his flesh. Joshua chapter 23, verse 13 
The Lord told the nation of Israel that if you don't do what's right with these, with, with my word, and I'm going to put other nations that are going to come and judge you, and they're going to be thorns in your side and your eyes. Remember Matthew chapter 13, verse 7, the parable of the sower? He goes out to sow the word of God. And the Bible says it's thorns, uh, the, the word of God goes out, and the Bible says the thorns spring up and choked them, and the guy couldn't get the word of God. And you go on over in the passage, and in verse 22, it tells you and defines that the thorns were the cares of this world. How about Mark 15, 17? Christ on the cross, he gets a count of thorns. A picture of him not being crowned as king, but crowned with my sin, the fallen nature of man. That's the crown he wore. Back in Judges chapter 9, you have a Bimelech, who one of the 18 types of the Antichrist, and he becomes the king over Israel, and he's called the Bramble. He's a thorn bush. The way of the slothful man is a hedge of thorns. And here again, it's real simple, not complicated. The verse simply says that if you're not going to go God's way, and you're going to go your own way, you're going to have a tough time of it. You're going to be like going through a thick hedge of thorn, brother, and it's almost impossible. You're going to have to fight your way through the sharpest stick and brambles of this life, and they're going to cut you up and leave you bloody. There's going to be a lot of pain, a lot, a lot of hurt. Your way of life will be a hedge of thorns. It'll cut you to pieces. One of my favorite verses is Job 9.4. And it says, He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who hath hardened himself against him and hath prospered? The verse simply says, Who do you think you are? Who do I think I am? That I can go against the things of God, do what I want to do, go my own way, and then really think in my mind, this is going to work out good? When you deal with the folks who are stalled in life, the ones who have problems, the ones who are not going anywhere, that are saved people, God's people, this will always be the fundamental issue. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 20 says that if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Now that's what happens. Somebody gets saved. God takes them out of the world. They start feasting at the continuous feast table with God. Then they decide to go back to the garbage can of the world. They leave that table of fellowship, go back to the world, and they get themselves entangled back into the world again. And the Bible says that they're in now is worse than when they started at the beginning. You know why? Because now not are you just going to get clobbered because you're sin, but now you've got the chastisement of God coming down on you. But look at the last part of verse 19. But the way of the righteous is made plain. That Bible's simple. Oh, when it comes to the things of the Bible in my life and all the things that come to me, oh, my way of not dealing with it biblically is just to say, I don't understand it. Oh, it's so complicated. But the Bible says the way of the righteous is made plain unto him. What a great verse. In Christianity, I think one of the greatest learning experiences will be when you get to the place that you really begin to work with people. It helps you grow. It helps you take the faith that God gave you and the grace that God gave you. And it expands it. You exercise it. And I try to enlist as many people as, as I can that are able to get involved with people on some level. 
And our church is just filled with people who are, on whatever level, doing something to help somebody else. It's so vital because it will do three things. And these three things are absolutely vital to you, to our church, and even to me. The first thing it does when you, on whatever level, when you decide that you're going to lend yourself to somebody else's issues, when you decide you're going to take what you've learned, disciple somebody, discipleship too, work with them on their problem areas, I don't care. When you decide I'm going to get my life involved with somebody else, it does three things. First of all, obviously, it helps them. They need somebody. Everybody needs somebody. I think Dean Martin sang that one time. They need somebody. They need somebody in their world many times just to talk to, to help them. They want the right direction. They can't find it themselves. So you help them. Second of all, it helps me. My job is to reproduce myself into you. When I get 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 people up on a level where I'm at that understand the Bible, understand the scriptures, what we do in the people ministry and the counseling things that we do here and what you've learned from just being here and growing and exercising your senses and getting to that point in your life, it it helps me. I don't know how many times somebody's come to me and said, I got this issue. And I'm thinking of one of you who had the exact same issue who got the victory. What a, what a match that is. But that would never happen if you wouldn't have got to the place that you said, hey, I, I want to I help. I want to take what God has given me. And I, no matter how basic it may be, I want to help somebody else. That's why in discipleship, I may have one main guy teach, but I'll put two or three younger people in there who get the chance to teach a lesson or two lessons or whatever. You've got to start somewhere. It helps me. It helps the person you're doing it with, but it helps me in the ministry here. But you know what really helps? You. Really helps you. Some of you are sharp as a scalpel this morning. Some of you, I have no fear in giving you whatever assignment that I have that I say, I just know that you are going to get it done and you're going to do it right. You know why? Because you've invested yourself with people and through that you've learned some things and not only does it help them, not only does it help me, but it really helps you. And many times you've said this to me, man, that was a great time with so-and-so, but I got to tell you, I think I got more out of it than they did. You betcha you will. Hey, come on, let's be honest. Many times they'll never finish. How many of you started with somebody that, oh, just wanted the Bible? And that lasted about a week, two weeks, maybe three weeks. And sometimes you get discouraged in that when you have three or four in a row. And you get discouraged of that. You think maybe there's something wrong with you. Let me just tell you something. Even in that, it doesn't matter. That's their choice. They'll either want it, not want it, start out wanting it, and decide later they don't want it. That's beside the point. No matter what the outcome, no matter what they do, whether they finish or they don't, you still benefit from it. You learn from when they do what's right, and you learn from when when they do what's wrong. It's part of the process. Bible talks about in Hebrews chapter 5 that you exercise your senses. 2 Timothy 1.5 talks about adding the things to your faith. Taking it and growing and, 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 and taking it and exercising yourself. Making yourself strong. 
and working with people, it broadens your perspective. It always allows you to see things in a multi-dimensional way. <clears throat> so many people just look at things in the Bible and life in such a single fashion. It'll force you out of your comfort zone. <clears throat> and the things that you deal with <clears throat> not only helps them, but suddenly things become much clearer and plainer to you. As you get closer to that exercising and being the full stature of Christ, as the Bible says in Ephesians 4, you begin to see the cause and effect of sin and disobedience in somebody's life and where you get involved with the Bible and helping them. It becomes, as the verse says, it becomes real plain to you what happened to them. It becomes real plain to you why now you don't go around some of the places anymore that you used to go. It suddenly becomes real plain to you why you don't even hang out with some of the same people you used to hang out with. And it becomes real plain to you why you don't do some of the things that other people do. It becomes real plain to you why you don't train up your children like some other parents do theirs. It becomes real plain to you why being accountable and responsible to them who have authority over you is so vitally important. It becomes real plain to you why the New Testament local church needs to be the center of your family and your life in everything that you do. And it will become real plain to you why you have to have the Word of God as the final authority in your life to do all the things that you do. Because you'll see in the tragedies, you'll see in the tragedy and the heartbrokenness and the brokenness of the lives of people that you're trying to help. Exactly why they get off track and head the wrong way and the unfolding disaster that always follows, it will become plain to you. There have been three great learning curves in my life. <clears throat> and they'll be in your life too. My first greatest learning curve was my own mistakes that I've made in my life. And we all make them. <clears throat> I never fault a person for making a mistake, no matter how bad it may be, as long as that person learns from that mistake. Most people do not. The second thing that, that I, I, I've, I've learned is the mistakes of other peoples in their lives that I've had to work with. I often said, as a father, I would have absolutely no excuse if my kids turned out being in the world and part of the world system. I, more than anybody else, <clears throat> would have no excuse whatsoever because I've had the privilege, I guess you could say, maybe it's not a privilege, but for lack of a better word, I've had the ability and, uh, and God has allowed me to see every mistake every parent's ever made with their kids over the last 40-some years of my life. And I don't have, a, I, I don't have an excuse. They may have one. They may say, nobody ever showed me. Nobody ever gave me this. Nobody ever helped me. I get that. But brother, I, I watched over for 40 years as a youth pastor when I started out, as a college and career guy when I got to that level, and then as a pastor for the rest of my life. I watched every parent make every stupid mistake that they could make, and they lost their kid over it. I learned from that. Tried to learn from it anyhow. And the third thing, I, <clears throat> I learned from the mistakes of the people that's recorded in the Bible. 
Uh, verse 19 says that there's a way of a slothful man and a way of a righteous man. And the Bible makes it very clear. You can go to, uh, you can go time after time after time and you can find examples of that. One of them is a hedge of thorns. And one, everything, everything becomes real plain to you. You see it as it is. There's nothing ever complicated about the Word of God. Nothing ever complicated about our relationship with Christ. We like to make it complicated. Because we really don't want to do what we need to do. Nothing will ever be complicated about anything God wants you to do if you just go the right way. How complicated God man makes the will of God in a person's life when the Bible makes it so simple, the Word of God versus the plan of God. How We've talked about it a million times. How, how complicated man wants to make spiritual gifts. <clears throat> now they got a thing now where you, many churches, a guy will come in and he'll give you a test. And by that test you take, writing down there, I guess your favorite color, what kind of dog you have or whatever, he'll determine for you what your spiritual gifts are. You have strong spiritual gifts, secondary spiritual gifts, this is your main spiritual gift. What a bunch of junk that is. Nobody even understands anymore how simple it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14 is the definitive chapters on spiritual gifts. It's so easy. He tells you in there that there's no spiritual gifts or the power of God. But there's a fruit of the Spirit, which is the character of God. Everybody wants the power of God in their life, so they take a stupid test. You know how you get the power of God in your life, whatever you need? It comes from you getting the character of God first. No character of God, no power of God. So you have to take the test. Some guy will make it up for you, and then you go through life confused. Listen, life will be complicated enough without you and me adding to the confusion by going our own way instead of following with God. Everything with God, he does, is a natural process. So not only did I learn from my own mistakes and watching others dealing with them and helping them with their mistakes... But boy, that Bible really lists them too. One of the greatest aspects of the Word of God is it records the lives and the issues and the tragedies of men and women who went their own way. Great examples. Proverbs, we know, is about a wise man and a foolish man. One goes his way in life, the other goes God's way in life. You know, I've often thought Christianity is a lot like a driver's ed class. I look at stupid things out there. It helps me understand, break complicated things down. And I, I was following a, somebody in a driver's ed car the other day. And I was, they, you know how they slow they go. And I was stuck there for like six days. So <clears throat> I had a lot of time to think. <clears throat> and I got thinking. I said, you know what? A driver's ed class is a lot like Christianity. In driver's ed, you go to class. You go to Bible study. You have an instructor in driver's ed. You got me. You watch movies on what to do and what not to do. We have our chart up there, and I illustrate sometimes we, we, we watch things too. You read the manual. You learn about the car. You learn about the, you read the book that talks about the driving laws, the speed limits, all the different ways you change lanes, put your seatbelt on, turn on the turn signal. You learn about the signs. This is a railroad crossing. This is a merge over. This is this and that. This is a stop sign. But you know, you know you'll never really learn to drive till you get behind the wheel. But you can go to every class on driver's ed. You can watch every movie. You can take every test. 
But if you really want to learn to drive the right way, at some point you've got to buckle up behind that wheel and drive that car. And you know, the Bible's the same way. <clears throat> I mean, when you get into that driver's ed car, <clears throat> they'll just send you off by yourself. <clears throat> I just don't throw you into ministry by yourself. You'll be driving along, and if you look in a special uh, driver's education car, there'll be two sets of brakes. In case you miss yours, he'll hit his. <laughs> That's a really good thing. <clears throat> And they always put a sign in the back window, student driver. I used to, before I mellowed, I used to, they used to infuriate me because they drive so slow, so I used to get right on their tail. I know, I know, I shouldn't even tell you these things. I used to get right on their tail. And I'd, I'd look, you know, and I know they're already nervous. And I know I was getting to it because the guy, the instructor would be looking over there and he'd be saying something. What he's saying is don't pay attention to that jerk back there. <laughs> But they put a little sign back there, student driver. You have somebody with you that helps you drive. But you know, at some point in your life, you learn to drive on your own. You've got to take that car out. You've got to go on your own. The Bible's the same way. Maturity as a Christian is exactly the same way. You start out studying your books, learning all the road signs, learning all the speed limits, learning all the things about ministry. Come to class, come to people ministry, come to Thursday night Bible study, up one side and down the other, come to Sunday morning, all the things that we do. You go through discipleship one, discipleship two. We talk about ministry all the time, getting involved, going out to restart this afternoon, all the opportunities we have. And you know what? You can come to all the classes you want. But until you get behind the wheel spiritually and you start doing ministry and driving the car yourself, you're never going to go anywhere. It's the same thing. It's when you get behind that wheel spiritually and you see and experience the issues. You have to deal. You have to now, the Holy Spirit of God moves you out of your comfort zone. You have to think. You have to take, actually watch God put you in a situation, give you uh, in that situation. And then the Holy Spirit of God bring out of you what you've studied or what you've learned and give you exactly. I've watched people that come out of the driving test thing and they're as happy as can be. They pull up there. Back the car in, don't knock the poles over. They get out, the guy says, that looks good. He pulls out and says, go on and get your license. Boy, they're high-fiving and happy and dancing. And you know what? I've seen some of God's people do the exact same thing. Call me on the phone when you were with somebody. They asked you a Bible question and they had a problem and you started to talk to them. Here's what you say all the time. Bob, you ain't going to believe this. They talk to me and I'm holding the phone out here because you're yelling so loud. And he's, Bob, you ain't going to believe this. They, I went out with so-and-so and they talked about this and they brought this up and, and you know what? But I, it's incredible, Bob. I, I, I didn't even know it was me talking. I just said things that I didn't even know what I was saying. And it just laid the whole thing out. It was so great. God, you, and off and off you go. You're just like the person who just passed their driving test. And you know what you did in ministry? You just passed your ministry test. You let God use you. You got past the book learning. You got out of it. And everything now is plain to you. Everything now is clear. And you're on that stretch of road where now you're going to be a better driver every day of your life, spiritually speaking. God's going to use you all over the place. That's what he does. When you get behind that wheel, you know, there's tremendous responsibility in driving a car. You can kill somebody. And there's tremendous responsibility in doing the ministry. You can spiritually kill somebody. 
But because of that exercise, the development of your own, of your own self and your, and your ability to do things and the grace that God gives you and how you learn and you add the things to your faith, you now begin to see things the way they really are. And things become real plain to you. And when you see a complicated situation, no more do you view it through the emotions. Oh, what would I do? Oh, how do I help them? You see it through the clear principles of the Word of God. That's graduating from driver's ed. Getting your own car. One set of brakes. And doing something for the Lord. The principles of the Word of God. This is the value of understanding and learning the book of Proverbs. The plainest book in the Bible, no question about it, on the issues of life and why man has his problems. And every week, we unearth four or five more verses that all dovetail into what we've seen. But also keep taking us further ahead. So 